We who believe in freedom cannot rest, sing Sweet Honey on the Rock and Vocal Lessons. The name of the song is Ella's Song. The lyrics coming from the iconic Ella Baker and Bernice Johnson Regan. We here at Solution to Balance, along with our guest today, Reverend Kelly Kirby, also believe we cannot rest until we are all free. Hello, folks. Welcome to Solutions to Balance. You are listening to WFMP 106.5 FM. I'm Jim Johnson, here with Jamie McMillan. We are your host for Solutions to Balance, a program of and sponsored by WFMP Radio. Solutions to Balance is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you can do so by emailing us at solutionsobalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Today's program is brought to you through the courtesy of the Lowell Fellowship for Reconciliation and Force of Justice as part of their Third Thursday Lunch series. The Third Thursday Lunch event that featured Kelly Kirby first aired via Facebook Live and its Zoom webinar September 16, 2021. Kelly Kirby is the first rector at St. Matthew's Episcopal Church here in Louisville and a member of Empire West. Beverly Marmion from the Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation will begin our session today, and Rody Streeter from Source of Justice will introduce Reverend Kelly Kirby. Hello, everybody. I'm Beverly Marmion, and on behalf of the Fellowship of Reconciliation and the Source of Justice Network, welcome to the first of our full season of Third Thursday Lunches. Though we yearn to return to the hospitality of Hotel Louisville, we are respecting the restrictions of the pandemic and plan to present all three of our fall programs via the amazing abilities of Zoom. In the tradition of these programs, we will be addressing and illuminating local, national, and international issues in which we as Americans are all deeply involved. Now I'm turning the screen over to Jim Johnson for further announcements. Welcome again, everyone. Roddy Streeter will introduce our keynote speaker today. Yes, thank you. I, I'm, I'm really pleased to be able to introduce uh, my rector, my um, the minister at St. Matthew's Episcopal Church, and she has an extraordinary story to tell, which is about sort of her journey into kind of an understanding and uh, about where racial prejudice has affected wealth and the hidden costs of, of racial prejudice, I guess. And Kelly has been the leader of the the Committee for Racial Healing, I think for like two years now, three years, and, and rotated off that in June. And it was the suggestion of that committee was to create a commission, a more uh, uh, funded and a more um, a robust, perhaps, commission whose job is just to make sure that all the lay and all the leadership of the whole diocese of, of Kentucky be trained up in racial consciousness, I guess. So Kelly, Correct my mistakes and, and please, this is a Kelly Kirby. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction, Rody. It is such an honor to be with all of you today. Thank you for taking time out to listen about this important topic. So my project has to do with a calling. And I asked the question, why? Why should I focus on economic justice for the American descendants of slavery by supporting Black-led institutions? So that's what I'll be talking about today. And the way that I get into this topic is by looking at philanthropic redlining. I'm going to get into the numbers by telling you a few stories about my wonderful clergy group, Empower West Louisville. I came to the conclusions that I will share with you by trying to walk responsibly on my faith journey. So the claims that I make are grounded in my identity as a Christian. However, I do not think that there is anything exclusively Christian about this topic. Here's the story. In the summer of 2015, in the year when the Mother Emanuel massacre took place, I joined a newly forming group of black and white pastors from around the city of Louisville to talk about racial inequality. We met at the boardroom of Simmons College of Kentucky, a historically black college. There, the president of the college is also the head pastor of the largest black church in Kentucky, St. Stephen's. I was just getting to know Dr. Cosby and the other pastors 
when he offered to give some of us a tour of West Louisville, which is where 75% of the black people live in this city. So that day I joined with two other white pastors in the back seat of an enormous SUV. Dr. Cosby sat in the passenger seat and narrated as the driver took us on an unforgettable tour. West Louisville and East Louisville are two different worlds. And the main reason for this is redlining, something that I will keep circling back to. So on the tour, we pulled out of the Simmons parking lot and onto the streets. I didn't know what to make of all the buildings in disrepair that exist on just the other side of downtown. We pulled right up to this Simmons College building by driving up over the curb, through the grass, right to the door. Now, this building has gone through quite a transformation since then. That's a topic for another day, maybe. As we drove around, I noticed that there was an abundance of liquor stores and family dollars in West Louisville and very little else. Dr. Cosby explained that the liquor stores and the family dollars are not owned by the people that they exploit. There are hardly any restaurants on that side of Louisville. That's the only supermarket that Kroger made national news when it was damaged during demonstrations in 2020. Next, we drove by St. Stephen Church and Family Life Center. It's in the poorest zip code in the state. And that's where I saw what Dr. Cosby and the congregation built. There is a large auditorium style sanctuary, place that I go to church many times over the next few years and a community center with a gorgeous gym. There's a cafe inside and even a racquetball court. Dr. Cosby took us by Southwestern Parkway, and he told us about Fountain Ferry, the amusement park that used to be there, the amusement park where only whites could go. He spoke about how painful it was as a child to see all of the rides and to know that he could never experience them because of the color of his skin. He took us by his house all the way in the far west end and showed us the river and explained to us about environmental racism. We saw big industrial buildings locked away behind chain link fences with weeds growing around them throughout the drive. Dr. Cosby told us how long he had been working in West Louisville. And it wasn't lost on me that it is about the same number of years that I've been alive. He said that he didn't think that he would live long enough to see the residents of West Louisville prosper. There were two other pastors along for this transformative ride and they were Joe Phelps, who led the largest white theologically progressive congregation in the city and Chris Caldwell, who led another big Baptist church nearby St. Matthew's where I serve in East Louisville. As we headed back to our cars, I asked Dr. Cosby what he was doing next that day. He said that he was meeting with some Crips to see what they could do together to make the neighborhood safer. I didn't ask any more questions after that, but Chris Caldwell did. He asked what we should read if we wanted to become more educated about racial injustice. Dr. Cosby seemed a little surprised at that question, but he didn't hesitate though. He said, read Black Power by Stokely Carmichael. So we all did, and it changed the course of our lives. Now, Stokely Carmichael doesn't mince words about how white liberals who want to help the black community always end up causing harm to the black community. And being one of those white liberals myself, I paid attention and I kept going to those clergy meetings on Mondays. After we unpacked Stokely Carmichael's black power, we continued to ask Dr. Cosby what he was reading. And everyone in the room tried to keep up. We were all learning so much at those meetings, especially the white pastors. Our concept of American history was shifting. We gave our group the name Empower West and outlined our purpose around economic for the black 
masses living in West Louisville. We recognized that we were changing so fast that we had to bring more people into the conversation. And that's how we started the Citywide Book Club. The idea was to bring in an author who wrote about something that concerns the Black community and then invite the entire city to read it together during Black History Month. Our first author was Ed Baptist. He wrote The Half Has Never Been Told. It explains how chattel slavery created modern capitalism and that's how the West was made wealthy. He says that enslaved Americans built the modern United States and indeed the entire modern world in ways both obvious and hidden. I'll never think about the fashion industry the same way now, that I understand the world became addicted to cotton supplied by slave owners who drove their slaves to work at an ever more ferocious pace and the West got rich on this forced and stolen labor. The book club was a success. And in those days, the Empower West clergy was into far more than getting people to read books. At those Monday meetings, we devised plans to talk with public officials and business leaders. We brainstormed letters and op-eds, planned events, and even called press conferences. Economic justice for the residents of West Louisville became our galvanizing desire. And I sat around that table and listened to Black leadership explain a whole new worldview to us. And we wondered together how to bring it about by peeling back injustice after injustice. In the early years, we were learning about so many topics that this world had to grapple with over the summer of 2020, the summer of racial reckoning after Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd were all killed. Do you know that when I wrote the grant proposal for this project, which is funded through the Louisville Institute, I thought that I would have to start with an explanation that connected slavery to present day inequality. I was prepared to get pushback on concepts like how chattel slavery differs from slavery in the Bible, the school to prison pipeline, mass incarceration, police brutality, the wage gap, colorblindness, voter suppression, the war on drugs, environmental disadvantage for non-whites, and even implicit bias. But in the midst of a world of suffering, the landscape has shifted. Stokely Carmichael's words that seemed so radical in 2015 sound a lot more like common sense today. The part about white liberals still really bugs me, but I'm trying to change that by doing what Stokely suggests and working with other white liberals to change our way of being white in this world. So fellow white people of goodwill, please listen up. I'm inviting you into this body of work that I hope will do some earthly good. White conservatives, unless you consider yourself a white nationalist, by my read, Stokely lumps you in with the white liberals. You don't have to be happy about this, but I do hope that you'll stick with me. Black and brown skinned people of goodwill, I'm not going to get everything right here. I'll own that right now. I'll gladly hear your objections. I'm coming at this work not as a humanitarian seeking a hobby, but as a matter of faith. And I need help seeing where I miss the mark. And so it's a really big leave of faith. Here we go. Talking about economic justice for the American descendants of slavery. I'm convinced that it has to be economic justice or we're not really talking about substantive justice for a group of people who worked for over 400 years without just compensation. I also care about justice for people whose skin color is not black. I recognize not every person who has black skin traces their lineage through the era of American's history when chattel slavery took place. That's why I'm getting so specific with the terminology that I learned to use around that boardroom table at the Empower West meetings. The American descendants of slavery, also known as blacks, have a particular position in our country that is distinct compared with all other people without that lineage. I think the term priority minority will be helpful when we look at the numbers. Let's start with a look at the racial wealth gap. White families have a net worth 
that is 10 times the net worth of Black families. The wealth gap is more telling than all of the other gaps, like the education gap and the wage gap. I'm going to use Brookings Institute's report for this part of the presentation. The data is from 2016. It says that the median net worth of a typical white family is $171,000, which is nearly 10 times greater than the median net worth of a typical Black family. The report goes on to explain the historical factors that led to this astounding gap. We've already talked about the unpaid workforce that provided economic benefits for whites during slavery. It's important to also know the history of how Congress mismanaged the Freedmen's Savings Bank, which left 61,444 depositors with losses of nearly $3 million in 1874. We need to consider the Tulsa Greenwood District Massacre in 1921, also known as the Black Wall Street. It was a thriving business district that was destroyed. That's just one of the many race massacres in our country that also had disastrous economic outcomes for the Black community. It's also important to consider the Jim Crow era's Black codes. These laws limited opportunities for Blacks to build wealth, especially in Southern states. When we put Black codes alongside the GI Bill that was structured to exclude Black veterans from homeownership and the New Deal's Fair Labor Standards Act exemption for domestic and agricultural and service occupations, which, by the way, were often the only employment available to Blacks, the picture gets clearer on how Black people were denied the ability to build up wealth. Which brings us to redlining. In 2017, Empower West Citywide Book Club read The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. He is a gentle, humble, knowledgeable speaker. His book dissolved any unarticulated assumptions that I had about redlining. It is not an unfortunate consequence of some bad real estate agents and misled bankers in some American cities, mostly in the South, with weak lasting effects here in 2021. Now, with every page, Rostin broke down those incorrect assumptions. It happened in cities from the East Coast through Middle America out to the West Coast. Redlining was not a result of private activity. It was a racist, explicit public policy that accounted for the present day concentration of black families in segregated poor urban areas. The Fair Housing Act of 1968 provided modest protections for blacks moving forward, but it did nothing to reverse the harm already caused by the lack of wealth building that many whites had access to when they fled to the suburbs. Our government and our courts decided locally and nationally, time and again, that Blacks should be denied access to wealth-building opportunities given to whites. When we look at maps, Josh Poe's map of Louisville is an excellent one to check out, we clearly see how those red lines translate into lack of wealth. My colleague Chris Caldwell, who was on that original tour of West Louisville, said that we should pay attention not only to the red lines on the map, also the green lines. The green lines show us which parts of our community were set up to succeed, which parts were designed to concentrate wealth. And the policies that led to so many whites living in the green-lined areas and so many Black families living within the red-lined neighborhoods contribute to the wealth gap. Blacks make up 13% of the population and own 2% of the wealth. Whites make up 60% of the population and own 90% of the wealth. And lack of wealth determines poor health outcomes, educational disadvantages, greater exposure to environmental harm, fewer employment opportunities that will pay a living wage, and no wealth to transfer to the next generation. The problem was exasperated by the Community Reinvestment Act of 1978. It was established to invest in Black neighborhoods, but it did this at subprime interest rates. So in 2008, when the stock market crashed, Black homeowners lost 40% of their wealth because they accrued less equity in their homes than white homeowners. Just one more financial setback 
for the Black community. 13% of families that receive an inheritance over $10,000. So now let's look at how Black wealth is transferred through generation to generation inheritance. If we look at college-educated Black families, we see that 13% receive an inheritance of more than $10,000. Compare that with 41% of white college-educated families who pass on an inheritance to the next generation. We dig a little deeper into this research done by two women at the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis. We see that white families receive an inheritance on average is $150,000 from the previous generation. When Black families receive an inheritance, it is usually less than $40,000. I remember one Empower West meeting. Uh, we had a larger group present that day. We met in the library to talk about the wealth gap. Dr. Cosby told his story about inheritance. When his parents died, he inherited the family Bible and a ring. He also inherited the funeral costs, not a house, not a car, not money from a bank account or a payout from an insurance policy, none of that. His story really gave me pause. What does it mean for the black community as the largest transfer of wealth takes place over the next two decades? Who will benefit and who will miss out as $30 trillion moves into the hands of younger generations in our country. According to the Brookings Institute, in 2020, Americans were projected to inherit about $765 billion in gifts and bequests. For Christians, the wealth gap is a matter of faith and a call to action. Jesus cared about wealth and poverty. The only thing that he spoke about more that on the topic of money is the kingdom of God. And so I think that it is time for us to give up the idea that our faith is about personal salvation and personal piety. Christianity is about a communal movement toward thy kingdom come, thy will be done in the here and now. It's about giving us our daily bread and delivering us from evil. So who should Christians look to to guide justice work for the American descendants of slavery? Let's listen to what Black-led organizations say they need. Black-led organizations are led and controlled by Black people for the purpose of serving the needs of the Black community. They are wonderful. There are five pillar organizations, Black churches, Black families, schools, Black businesses, and Black media. These organizations are uniquely positioned to effectively serve the needs of Black people. When white-led organizations come into places like West Louisville, they're likely to focus on charitable work rather than transformative work. There are other problems too, like acculturation, the loss of Black culture. So I reject the idea that impoverished urban areas are home to the majority of Blacks should be cleaned up by white people and transformed to look like white spaces. Black people should control how black spaces are transitioned out of extreme poverty. Black-led organizations are best positioned to solve problems in the black community that will make the black community and all of us whole. Take the black church, for example. Predominantly Black congregations led by Black pastors are far more than a worshiping community. In Marissa Baradaran's book, The Color of Money, which was our 2020 book club book, she explains how Black churches sometimes work like banks, making loans to members of the community who can't get a loan from the bank. So churches take their savings and create these loans knowing that they are risky loans. It's part of their pastoral responsibility. It's also part of their investment into the Black community. Black churches continue to be one of the only institutions with brick and mortar owned and controlled by the Black community. They are important connectors between the Black community and available resources. For example, St. Stephen's functions as a Black media outlet in West Louisville. It's a reliable narrator for the community to find out where to get a COVID test, where to get medical care, how to register to vote. 
Black churches are inherently political organizations, which is not true for the majority of white congregations. White Christians have had the privilege to focus on personal piety instead of building up the community. To read more about this, I suggest that you read Robert P. Jones' White Too Long. I remember one service that I attended at St. Stephen's where the Reverend Jesse Jackson preached. He preached the gospel and then he led an altar call. The gospel called the congregation to know Jesus, but the altar call, the altar call called on black youth who had not yet registered to vote to make themselves known. It was like nothing I've ever seen. In a typical altar call, I would expect the preacher to call up the people to confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But this was a call on individuals to admit that they had not yet registered to vote. And before God and before the congregation, they stood up, came to the altar, and then went out into the hallway where there were volunteers at tables ready to help them. Historically, Black colleges and universities account for 3% of four-year nonprofit colleges and universities, but their alumni account for roughly 80% of Black judges, 50% of Black lawyers and doctors, 25% of Black undergraduates who earn degrees in STEM, and are only non-white vice presidents. Their graduates are more likely to find employment upon graduation and enter the workforce with fewer student loans. Like Black churches, HBCUs do far more than confer degrees. They're skilled at bringing in high school graduates with educational deficits and giving those students the support they need to do college-level work. HBCUs work with students to overcome barriers that predominantly white educational institutions do not. For example, at Simmons College, there are no basketball scholarships. All of the players are walk-ons. They practice early in the morning as the players also have to balance school and part-time jobs and caring for their family members. HBCUs pass on very little debt to their students even while they are underfunded organizations. They have very small endowments or no endowment at all. They are effective, efficient, and not only for Black students. Last year, I took a course called the Radical Martin Luther King at Simmons College and Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, and it was fabulous. Okay, so this brings us to the financial realities of Black-led organizations. Since these organizations are uniquely positioned to implement effective programs that actually transform the lives of impoverished Black people, they should be funded by individuals. They should be funded by religious organizations. They should be funded with foundation dollars and ultimately through public policy. But they're not being funded, um, not funded for sustainability. So all of these layers are important. Looking at public policy changes, Marissa Broderon has this to say, we might want to apply the following short litmus test to any policy proposal. Does the program require some collective sacrifice or does it place the burden of closing the wealth gap entirely on the black community? Well, we should advocate for policy improvements. We can't just wait for policy to change. So let's take a look at how philanthropy helps and could help these black led organizations. We'll look at philanthropic giving and philanthropic redlining with granting bodies or foundations, um, churches, and as individuals. Let's look at some of the barriers they face. Blacks have less wealth when compared to whites. Blacks are more likely to support Black-led organizations, of course. Here are 10 reasons why Black-led organizations experience the funding barriers that I call philanthropic redlining. These 10 reasons were compiled by Dr. Kevin Cosby. Anti-Black racism, I'll say more about that in a few moments. The absence of Black advocates. Very few Black people serve on foundation boards. High levels of distrust. Remember, Black and white churches are both called church that operate in different ways. Well, that, that's true for foundations too. Foundation laziness also applies to the church. Foundations are willing to study how foundation dollars don't go to the black community, but don't change as a result. 
the belief that white-led institutions can best serve the Black community. White-led institutions are notorious for bringing charity instead of transformation. Tradition, granting bodies, are human organizations. We, we are accustomed to the way that we've always done it. White fragility, claiming Black issues is a class issue instead of a race issue. I'll speak about that in a few moments. And the ignorance of the Black community. So one of the most surprising things that I learned in Empower West is that the Black community doesn't necessarily know much of the history that I didn't know until I started studying with the Black pastors. We learned together how slavery relates to capitalism, the struggles of Black banks, and the present-day suffering caused by redlining. Black wealthlessness, Blacks have fewer discretionary dollars than whites do to give away. Foundations, staff, trustees, are psychologically and physically separate from the problems in the Black community. East Louisville and West Louisville are two very different worlds. Redlining teaches us that this is true in every metropolitan area in the United States. So I have a little Antonio Moore for you. Antonio Moore is an attorney, a radio show host, a documentary producer, and the co-founder of the ADOS movement. And he has something to say about philanthropic discrimination. It's the underinvestment and neglect of Black-led institutions for social change. According to Antonio Moore, African-Americans make up around 13% of the population, but only 7 to 8% of foundation funding goes to people of color. And if we look just at the Black community, the piece of the funding pie drops down to 1%. Since the majority of wealth is concentrated in the white community, and whites are most likely to give to white-led organizations, most of the philanthropic giving aimed at helping the Black community is not controlled by Black-led organizations. When foundations give to Black-led organizations, it's with fewer dollars and more strings attached. This can even happen in racial justice grant-making programs, where the need for immigrant-led groups is assumed, but the need for Black-led groups is sometimes questioned. And so again, it is a matter of faith for me. Here is a lens that I think is helpful to explain why we haven't been able to see or hear our calling to address economic justice for black people. We focus on the wrong things, focus on racism and discrimination instead of the advantage possessed by whites. We lift up the idea of equal opportunity instead of looking at unequal opportunities. And we point to stories of individual achievement instead of group-based social capital, shared rules and norms, shared understanding, language. This is Nancy Diatomoso's rope. She wrote The American Non-Dilemma, Racial Inequality Without Racism. She helped me to see how most racial inequality has to do with whites helping other whites, which sounds like a pretty good thing. She explains how racial inequality is tied to social capital. The focus on racists and discriminators provides legitimacy to whites who help other whites without having to have hostile feelings or discriminate against blacks or other non-whites. Thus, there is no moral dilemma about racial inequality. Here's the book club picture again. We spend our lives working for unequal opportunities. We wanna get that job, we wanna get ahead, help our kids. Since whites cannot see these dynamics, it's common to assume that the issue is with the black community. Whites don't recognize that we got all that we have on our own. We remove ourselves from the inequality story. We benefit from racial inequality without recognition that we participate in a system that perpetuates it. So as we consider Black-led organizations, let us remember that whites help other whites instead of focusing on discriminations of whites toward non-whites. Whites have access to unequal opportunities compared with non-whites. 70% of the jobs that people had over a lifetime they got that information or influence or opportunity from a person. So that's networking. And whites focus on personal achievement while pursuing group-based advantages. The ultimate white privilege is the privilege not to be racist, 
and still benefit from racial inequality. We spend our lives working for unequal opportunities. We wanna get that job, we wanna get ahead. We want to help our kids. Since whites do not see these dynamics, we have to help each other to pay attention to them. So as we consider Black-led organizations, let us keep all of this in mind. And remember that the ultimate white privilege is a privilege not to be racist and still benefit from all these things. The racial wealth gap is a matter of faith for me, it is also a call to action. The wealth gap is a matter of faith. Redlining results in forced economic segregation. It decides through policy who are the haves and who are the have-nots. Philanthropic redlining creates underfunded Black-led organizations, even though they are the most effective organizations for transformation amongst the Black underclass. So who should individuals, their local communities of faith, and judicatory bodies look to to guide justice work for the American descendants of slavery? Fund the five Black-led social change organizations. You can visit Black churches and give donations without strings attached. You can support Black-led nonprofits that provide direct service to Black families. Listen to Black media. Advocate for public funding for public media that is run by Black people. Patronize Black-owned businesses. When you need a plumber, consider hiring a Black plumber. Remember my colleague, Chris Caldwell, who asked Dr. Cosby what we should be reading? When Chris's father died, he hired a Black-owned funeral home. Educate yourselves about HBCUs. Consider supporting them at the same level that you support your alma mater. Encourage your clergy to take a course at an HBCU. It's the cool thing to do these days. In my class, Cornell West was one of the guest lecturers. And last of all, pray deeply about the wealth that will be transferred by your generation to the next. I said at the very beginning that this is not a hobby for me. It's a deep matter of faith. God put it on my heart to wrestle with this question. And I did. I wrestled with it and wrestled with it. And so did my husband. And we felt called to put a Black-led organization into our estate plans instead of our white educational institutions. I know that we are not the only ones who have been called upon to make a meaningful transfer of wealth to the next generation. So thank you very much. I'm going to stop sharing my screen and open this up for questions. And perhaps a suggestion, uh, people could uh, type their questions in the chat and we'll just try and take them in order. And I think that uh, David Horvath is, is uh, checking if uh, Facebook uh, comments to help that. Kelly, thank you so much. That's so comprehensive. Where can we get lists that identify Black-owned entities? Okay, so what, what of, one of our clergy group's first projects was a total failure, um, but it, we, we created something called Stokely's List, and um, it was intended to be a directory of Black-owned businesses in Louisville, but it turns out asking a bunch of clergy to maintain a phone book like was not a good idea. Thanks be to God, there are all sorts of Facebook groups, and so um, if you join one of those uh, Black-owned business Facebook groups, you will, you can type in like, this is what I'm looking for, and, and the answers are immediate. So it's pretty easy to get access to that information. Yeah, I, I am completely aware that some of the designations that the, the ADOS movement use are, are divisive. And I think for good reason, I want to support that it is, if we don't look at lineage and we just look at skin color, then, then, then we are sorting all sorts of people into a potential pool for reparations that, that really don't belong together. You can look at the, the median wealth of a um, recent Nigerian immigrant, and, and it doesn't compare with an American descendant of slavery. And so 
that's that's work that I can't just hand to you, but I think it's worth looking into it. <laughs> so I'm looking at, at Andrew's question. How are our Louisville foundations doing when it comes to supporting black groups and businesses? I think that they, they fit right in with what I said in my project that they are very willing to study this and slow moving. Everyone is imagining that, that 2020 was a better year for grants for the black community than it actually was. I was looking at a, um, let's see, a report just a little bit ago that I, I'll share with you. This is the philanthropic racial equity. They said, it's right down here, that you know, in 2020, here are the estimates for funding for racial equity and racial justice. And of, of course, it looks okay, but it, it's really much smaller than, than I would hope for. And I think that the Black-led organizations were hoping for. Also, the, there's, there's a, a technical problem. Often Black-led organizations do not have a designated grant writer on staff. And so of all of the hoops that you have to jump through to uh, receive these, these foundation grants are hard to get for um, an underfunded organization who doesn't have the staff to apply and then follow through with all the requirements. Currently, a, a controversy is raging over the teaching of Native American and African American. Bills filled, filed by Joe Fisher and Matt Lockhart are intended to impede the teaching of African American and Native American history in our public schools and universities. Those bills will come up in the Kentucky State Legislature in January of 2021. What's your opinion? Uh, so my opinion is relates to, to my story. I, I didn't know the history and uh, learning the history made it impossible for me to continue doing the same things that I was doing. I, I think it, you know, telling the truth is, is always where we should start. And I understand that this is a, a challenging climate to do that. But if, if we all take it upon ourselves to, to tell the truth again and again and again, then um, I, I think that, that is something that all of us with white privilege can do that is, is not a waste of our time. Do I see ways that progressive Christians can challenge the narrative denying critical race theory? I mean, yes. So I think that that white mainline congregations, white progressive congregations really should study black history and uh, discuss it as a white community. I do not think that just because it's black history, that means it's not for whites. I mean, the reason that the, the history unfolded the way it did was because whites designed lots of racist policies. So to be a, an authentic Christian, I, I think that it is important to understand and respond to the history. Yeah, you got it, Barbara. Salah does tell the truth, tell the truth. And I, I imagine that Barbara Boyd, if any of us came to you and said, can you, can you help my church um, engage with the truth, that would be a, a good place to start. What was I saying about the phrase colorblindness? Oh, you know, it, since 2020, I think that that's, it's been less okay to say that, but it used to be that people would say, well, I, I don't, I don't see color as like, I'm not racist, which is a, <laughs> an incredibly racist statement <laughs> because to not see color is to say, I don't see uh, all the disadvantages that you faced because of your color that people of my color like made happen for you. It's a sala and Barbara, I need a little help here. Could you please let me know what ASALA stands for? I can't do it off the top of my head. Okay, ASALA is the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History. Thank it you. was started 106 years ago by Dr. Carter G. Woodson. And most of you will recognize Dr. Carter G. Woodson as the father of Black History Month. And we would love to tell you more about it if you just contact FOR, Source of Justice, or ASALA, we have a Facebook page. It's a national organization and 48 states are part of ASALA. Thank you, Barbara. I, I'm going back to the questions and I missed one. Can I name some transformational Black-led nonprofits? 
And so I, I think that in, in our city, that there are, there are two shining examples, Simmons College of Kentucky, our only HBCU in Louisville. We are so blessed to have an HBCU that is educating students and impacting our, our culture here in the city. Also the Urban League, our, our Urban League is just a, an outstanding example of what an Urban League can do in a metropolitan area. Question, how available am I to tell the story in other churches on Sundays? And so it depends on the time of day. I, I have services in the morning and then a five o'clock service in the evening. So if, if it can be in between that, I, I will not miss church to go to another church. That's an arrangement I made with my vestry, but I am happy to come to a Sunday school class if, if we can make it work. And I'm also happy to come to any weekday group. And also I might add that this uh, will be available on the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Uh, we have a, a webpage that has our third Thursday recordings of our presentations. I see that Jan grapples with the Ninth Street Divide. Jan, I hope you heard me say, you know, redlining wasn't only bankers and real estate agents. It, it, it was explicit policy. And so it, it was designed that way. But Jan's a real estate agent. Can I comment on ways to apply my perspective internationally? I, yes, because I, I think what, what has changed where, where I have experienced conversion is um, understanding my white privilege and then using that privilege to try to do some earthly good. I mean, it, it's one thing to try to make yourself feel better because like once you spend some time with privilege, like you kind of feel guilty. I, I think that's pretty common, um, but it's the earthly good part that, that I am concerned about. And so how do I transfer some of my privilege to uh, underprivileged people? And I, I think that, that that's, that's how you look at it from an international perspective. Judy says, a group at our church recently discussed the Black National Anthem and its history. Maybe our church could have a sermon or a discussion group about that. It would be a beginning at covering some history. So when I started going to um, Simmons basketball games, I found out that they sing the Black National Anthem and the other national anthem. And so I had my kids memorize it and they were invited to sing the national anthem at Thanksgiving dinner, which I'm not sure what, why that happened, but it did. Um, they, they were ready with both of them. Do you know of the city planted Evanston? Yes, I do. And so if Evanston can, can do reparations, why, why isn't Louisville doing reparations? I, I think that there, there is um, something that's going to come up it, at Metro Council this afternoon, I said, hope that you will watch it. Every city should be doing work on reparations. And, and I say this understanding that I'm speaking against like the great guru on reparations. And, and that's uh, William Darity. He wrote a book with his wife and he, he really wants to talk about national policy. I have a different opinion as a church person. I think that when we participate as individuals and when we get our churches involved in the work of repair, that um, it just, it's, it's like a culture that, that I expect um, this congregation to live in, that one, one act isn't going to fix everything. And I also don't think we can wait on policy, even as we hope and pray for policy to change. So how do we get people, Jan Schultz, together to share their story when our churches and neighborhoods are so separated? I really believe transformative change will happen one person at a time. And I, I am with you on that, Jan. I personally, I, I go visit um, Black-led congregations. There are two Episcopal majority Black congregations in Louisville. They both happen to be in West Louisville. And, and so I have just gone to meet members of those congregations and their, their church leadership um, because those relationships are important to me. But I, I recognize that it is not easy. It's, it's not the sort of thing like, well, let's invite that congregation out to St. Matthew's to have a potluck. Like that, that's not going to accomplish what we're trying to do. Uh, if I may uh, jump in here, we've, uh, we've reached our one hour, and traditionally the third Thursday lunches were a one hour long. We will continue to, uh, to have some questions afterwards, but I think 
we would like to have uh, maybe Beverly say something about what the next third Thursday lunch will be. Uh, but I think people have to bring their own lunch because I think this all also will be on Zoom. So, Beverly, uh, if you could bring us up to date on what we have in mind for next. Yes. October. Our third Thursday lunch in October is going to be five weeks from today, and it's going to fall on October 21st, again at, at 12 p.m. And our program is going to focus on the state of affairs among the Palestinian people in October of 2021. The speaker will be Dr. Ibrahim Imam, who is a professor of computer sciences at the Speed Scientific School. Ever since he and his family moved to Louisville in 1984, Dr. Imam has spoken openly and publicly about the poorly understood, inadequately publicized and outrageously misrepresented history of the Palestinian people in the 20th and 21st centuries. The United States government has been deeply involved in the dispossession, the ongoing dispossession of the Palestinian people since 1918 and which continues today. Our speaker Kelly Kirby just said, telling the truth is always the place to start. And Ibrahim Imam is going to be telling us the truth about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So I urge all of you to sign on to our October program, which will be Zoomed, and join us then on October 31st. Thanks so much, and bye for now. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are out of time. We'd like to thank our guest speaker today, Reverend Kelly Kirby. We'd also like to thank Source of Justice, the Liberal Fellowship of Reconciliation, for sponsoring September's third Thursday lunch event. Solutions to Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. The Solutions to Violence program that features Kelly Kirby will air again September 21st at 8 a.m. and September 22nd at 6 a.m. To listen to Live Stream, visit our website at forwardradio.org and click on Listen Live Now. We will place the Solutions to Violence program that features Reverend Kelly Kirby in our archives September 22nd. To listen via our archives, visit our website, scroll down to Program Archives, and then scroll down to the Solutions to Violence program that features Kelly Kirby. Until next time, keep the peace in your own personal way and help others do the same. For Solutions to Violence, I'm Tim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan, and our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson.